Hello, podcast listeners, and just a quick content warning for today's episode of Interdisciplinary. This episode uh, deals with mountain search and rescue teams, and while there is no um, explicit or graphic description of injuries or accidents, there is um, mention of the results of accidents that um, can be pretty triggering to the imagination. Um, So if this is something that you would prefer not to hear today, then I invite you to turn this off, go to the next podcast on your feed, and join us again next week. Thank you. Welcome to Interdisciplinary, Season 7. I am here with a part of the Hillwell Brain Trust. I'm Cal Cates, and... uh, you know, here we are talking about the things, saying the quiet parts loud, uh, bringing up the topics that nobody wants to talk about. And uh, not only for massage therapists, but for all the people who care about people in the world. As always, we start with a little pun. And uh, I don't know, this is not my best work, but uh, I think you guys are going to like it. Um, doctor, I just, I keep getting smaller and smaller. The doctor says, you're just going to have to be a little patient. <laughs> It's from this new book I got on vacation called The Very Embarrassing Book of Dad Jokes because your dad thinks he's hilarious. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, you needed that. I did, I did. I didn't have enough dad joke books and now I'm I'm approaching critical mass maybe. Uh, Yeah, so anything we should know, um, Carrie and Corey, before we dive into today's topic, any uh, burning things left over that can't be treated by penicillin? Uh, (laughs) No. I think not. Why don't you dive in, Cal Cates, and and tell everybody, tell the people about your quote-unquote vacation. Listen, that's (laughs) going to be another episode about how Carrie and I envision vacation, but um, it was super fun. Uh, Carrie and I actually are both fresh off the Mountain Rescue Association annual conference that was hosted this year in the lovely Estes Park, Colorado, which is just a place that once you're there, you don't ever really want to leave. Um, beautiful mountains in every direction, um, mule deer everywhere, which if you've never seen a mule deer, you kind of feel like you're at the North Pole. Like they look like reindeer, like they've got these giant fuzzy antlers and they're sort of like a like a moose and a and an elk had a baby. Like they're not that big, but they're kind of gangly. And um, when you see one live, it's really amazing. And then we were up high on a mountain, and we saw these little things called pika, which are like what's what's the plural of pika? Is it pikas? Pikey? Pike? I don't know. We saw them. <laughs> um, pika. They're kind of like uh, they're pika. Maybe that's it. They're like giant like mountain gerbils, basically. Um, they're just these that like might be my favorite description ever of pika. Well, it's funny because we we hiked this thing called Twin Sisters Peak, which is almost twelve thousand feet when you get to the top of it. And when you get above the tree line, it's mostly just like rocks and dirt and stuff. And you wouldn't think there's anything there. And then all of a sudden, you see this little like mountain gerbil just pop out from between these rocks and just munch, you know, vegetation or whatever. And then there'll be a little ground squirrel that kind of looks like a hardcore prairie dog squirrel chipmunk thing that is just this super cute rodenty mountain animal um 
and I just love the weird mammals that show up in all the different places that we travel. So um, that's not what we're here to talk about, but I want you to know that these things exist and that it's worth sucking wind on the way up the mountain to see these cute little mountain mammals. And suck wind you will. Indeed, because as <laughs> Carrie Jordan is fond of saying, there's no air in the air when you get up that high. No. Whew, yeah, but it was worth it. So. Um, so Carrie and I actually were both um, asked to do some uh, some chatting with the folks who attended this conference, which is a national gathering of search and rescue volunteers. Um, many places in the country have search and rescue teams, and they're almost entirely volunteer uh, run, volunteer organized. They do tons of their own fundraising and education and all kinds of things to keep going. And uh, something that never occurred to me um, was that depending where you are a search and rescue volunteer, the type of rescues you will be doing are entirely different. So we talked to a woman from Wyoming and they do like cliff and mountain and canyon rescues. And then I talked to a kid from Tennessee who does like cave rescues and just swamp rescues. And so it really depends on your geography, basically where humans come to grief in nature, because that's really um, often when search and rescue is called out is because somebody forgot to bring water and winds up stranded on top of a mountain or maybe down in a cave um, and needs to be rescued or um, maybe they fell off or got stranded on a cliff. Uh, the things that humans can get into, I mean, just innumerable. And the apparatus that has been created to rescue them from these um, ill-fated adventures of daring do, uh, also endless. Hoists and lifts and razors and like all this equipment and machinery and, and things that volunteers learn to run and take care of and maintain. So we were asked to come and uh, talk about what are you not talking about as a search and rescue volunteer? And that um, one of the things that, you know, they asked Carrie and I to do a session about, uh, we they asked us to do a session sort of knowing what we teach about. And they said, you know, what do you think would be useful? And we were like, oh, well, let's do authenticity and resiliency in search and rescue volunteer work. And like 250 people-ish attended this conference. And we were in our time slot. We were up against the guy talking about drones and a woman talking about how to take care of your um, human remains detection dog team. And so we were like, nobody's going to come to this session about feelings. You can learn about drones or dogs like I didn't want to be in our session right <laughs> be honest Corey you would have picked both different. those things sound way cooler <laughs> <laughs> so we it was really funny too it was a classic like bunny and bear moment because Carrie was sure no one would come to our session I'm like no some people are gonna come like resiliency and like burnout and stuff are, are big topics like I don't think we're gonna we're not gonna rival the the drones and the dogs but like people are gonna come so we walk into the room and there's probably like I don't know, 80 chairs or something. And, and we're, we're going to put them in a circle because of course they're in like the sage on the stage setup where like everybody's just looking at the front of the room and we're like, we're not going to have that. So we start step, step one in making people uncomfortable is make them sit in a circle. That's right. So, so we make this circle and I think we sort of like non-verbally compromised and made the circle like for maybe 20 people. So we sit down, there's a couple of early, early adopters, we'll call them, who showed up before the, the period starts. And then like, by the end of our session, we had easily 70 people. 
Um, and it, it started with, you know, maybe 15 and then a couple of people came in and filled out those spots. And then it was great because everybody who came in after seemed visibly relieved to grab a chair outside the circle and then <laughs> like magnified discomfort when everybody in the circle just moved to make room for them to come into the no, no. We're like, no, nobody sits outside. Um, and it was really interesting because we, you know, we do this thing sometimes where we invite people into a workshop and we say like, why are you here? And people give their perfunctory, you know, answers. And then, and then we sort of like allow this pregnant pause. And then we say, why are you really here? And then everybody like takes in a horrified deep breath and is like, oh God. Um, but man, they wanted to talk about it. Like the first time around the room, people were like, the dynamics in my search and rescue team are toxic. Um, we don't know how to take care of each other. It's really exhausting. We're falling apart. A variety of things like this. Um, and we were like, I think that's good. I don't think we need to push them any harder. Like, <laughs> I don't know why they're here. I mean, we do want to make the point that as the point person in this room for your team, you are also here for you. So don't forget that like, you're not actually coming here just to deliver the news to your team. You are here because you are also feeling the stress and the burnout and the, you know, the toxic dynamic is taking its toll on you as well. So that was just, I mean, it was simultaneously fun and disheartening because it was fun because I feel like we can, we can say to people, yep, that makes sense. And like, you're not crazy. And the level of relief that that provides for people, it, it just never gets old. Like that you can just say, yep, the fact that you're upset is proof that you are paying attention. And there, you know, on that level, at least there's nothing wrong here. But then also disheartening because it, it's just, the common denominator is people, right? Like, I mean, it's just, when you get groups of people together, it's real easy for things to become toxic. And I think when you add the volunteer aspect of it, it's a whole nother level because the baggage that people bring to a volunteer engagement, and I think particularly one like this, where you don't get to say like, on Tuesdays from two to four, I deliver Meals on Wheels, right? Like at 3 a.m. you're sound asleep and your, your beeper, your transponder, whatever you have for your team goes off. And you, and you have to decide because there's a team. And I mean, some of the teams are different sizes, but many of these teams, you don't have to go to every call. Somebody will go, right? So every time you have to make this decision, do I go, do I not go? And then there's all this weird jockeying about if I go, will so-and-so be there? And if I go, will I get to drive the truck? Will I get to work the winch? Will I get to fly the drone? Or will I have to, you know, do paperwork or something like less interesting. And the amount of sort of anxiety and stress that goes with all of that uncertainty. And then, oh, we might find a person who's frozen to death or who, you know, is like seriously in danger. And um, it's really stressful. And they have these act after action briefs that are about, mostly about the logistics and the process. Like, how did it go? who showed up on time, what equipment worked well, you know, what could we do better next time in terms of how the team functioned logistically. And there might be some mention of like, oh, that was stressful or, you know, that was great, but it's not an opportunity to really process how messed up it is that you were like sound asleep in your bed and you went out in the middle of the night in the dark to find whatever the heck you found. And the array of things that you find as a search and rescue volunteer is pretty broad. So 
it was interesting to see. I was very nervous preparing to offer the keynote because I thought this these are not my people. Like I don't, I'm not a search and rescue volunteer. I don't do this work. Um, it is definitely a good number of white, older male retirees um, who I was of course making the assumption don't really want to have feelings. And certainly some of them actually came up to me after and was like, yeah, I didn't really want to come to this, but it was okay. You know, and <laughs> high praise indeed. yeah, high praise. Um, but there were, oh, go ahead, Carrie. Well, it's interesting to me to hear you say that because I felt like one of the reasons that I was excited to accept this invitation is that I consider search and rescue volunteers healthcare providers the way I consider massage therapists healthcare providers. I mean, you, that's what th they are providing care. <laughs> um, often people are injured, sometimes people are dead. Um, but even people who are, uh, you know, there's a, just like we see in the hospital and in palliative care, and just like we see in massage therapy, like there's this funny hierarchy of like the, the rescues, you know, oh, this person just forgot water and they got dehydrated and a little disoriented and they freaked out, right? Or, oh, this is a family who are from Iowa. They never saw a mountain before. They walked up in flip-flops. Somebody slipped and twisted their ankle. Uh, versus the, oh, this is an experienced like climber who cliffed out and like, you know, blah, blah, blah. And we had to, as you said, winch and fancy and do all these things, right? And I, I think it's that we see the same thing in healthcare. And it's so crucial, I feel like, to remember, you know, that person who forgot water was real scared and had a moment of rubbing up against their own mortality that may not have been amazing. <laughs> you know, the family who wandered off the trail, even though they weren't that far off the trail, even though no, you know, somebody just sprained an ankle, you had that feeling that you couldn't take care of the people you love and protect them. Um, these are big things that happen. And so um, I think that it's really, it, they are our people. And one of the reasons we thought we should talk about this experience on interdisciplinary is because I think, again, I, I really want us to broaden our view of who's a healthcare provider. And, and as you said, Cal, as if to drive the point home, they had all the same sort of issues that we see in other fields where people care for people. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, and the burnout rate, they, um, the, Colorado, I can't remember the name of the organization, but there's a, a an organization in Colorado that was not Mountain Rescue um, or Larimer County Search and Rescue who invited us um, that did a survey of all the search and rescue volunteers across Colorado. And of course, you know, this doesn't count all the people who were too burned out to even bother taking the survey, right? But about 2,800 people took the survey and the survey revealed that two thirds of the people who took the survey we're displaying signs of, of either being in burnout or being very close to being burned out. And when you look at the parallels with emergency medical services and suicide rates and mental health conditions that are exacerbated or even initiated in this work, it's, you know, people are starting to talk about it. And, and it's another place where humans sort of jump into fix. So, you know, people, a lot of these teams wanted to talk about how they have peer support programs in place. And um, 
But when you really sort of drill down, like what is peer support, it's still sort of missing the piece of like, the peer support isn't like come and it is actually come and, you know, pour out your guts when you just can't handle it anymore. There's somebody on our team who went to a workshop, multi days, multi hours, whatever they were able and willing to invest so that a person or maybe two or three people, depending on the size of the team are trained to be peer support people. And those are the people who now can handle your humanity basically. And then this idea that everybody else just sort of, one of the guys after my talk asked a question about, you know, we have um, these peer support people and they're really like, they become the only people who can handle this. And we were joking about the, you know, how physicians often, you know, will see like when a patient starts to cry or wants to like express feelings, the, the physician's like, hold on, let me get the social worker. And that it's a, it's a similar dynamic that the idea that you would just listen to why it was hard to one of the folks who came up and talked to me said that he had gone down on a cave rescue and there was brain on the ground when he got down there. Like, I would probably need to talk with somebody about that. Even if just to say to another person, I just saw brains on the ground, human brains. Like, I, I'm not really sure where to put that, but I just need to say this out loud. And for that other person to be like, that would be upsetting. Yep. Makes sense. I'm here if you want to have a beer, go skiing. I mean, this was the other thing that came up is that peer support can look lots of ways, but that when we see others suffering, we create a program, right? And like, this is the way that we address it. And can we build a community of resiliency so that it's okay to feel and, um, and that you can have all the peer support you want, but if the culture of your team is such that vulnerability is looked down upon, and that vulnerability is judged as basically having feelings, it's not gonna be safe for people to access all of these structures that you've created, hoping that the feelings won't touch you. Corey, your face is saying many things. Uh, right now my face is pondering the difference between peer support and friendship, because there appears to be a very large difference between those two things. So. You said it can look like many things. You can have a beer, you can go bowling or disc golfing or walking or sit on a couch or whatever it is. But that once you start calling it peer support and calling it a program, like those options are now off the table for some reason. Like it needs to be in like a closed, we have a closed white room for this with a couple of chairs in it and a table. And um, I have a form that I need to fill out afterwards. And, and like, <laughs> How is that more helpful than like just being friendly or having a friend? Um, and if your friend is not in search and rescue, it's probably a lot harder to bring up the, wow, I just saw brains moment than it is if they do the same activity you do in your kind of spare time at three in the morning. Like <laughs> that's a really weird set of circumstances to bring to, you know, someone who doesn't do that. So yeah. Right. And I think that this is one of one of the things that I noticed as well is that the the one of the many ways I think that peer support gets underutilized is that it's only for negative things, right? Mm -hmm. Um and that and that everybody on the team is gonna have different reactions to the same missions. 
things, right? The, the same things aren't going to trigger everybody, right? Some people are going to have really struggled with a mission while others on the mission were like, that was awesome. Everything went so cool, right? <laughs> uh, just because people are people and that we also don't, we also imagine peer support, like the formality of peer support is, as Cal said, for like when you're broken, when you're sad, when you're stressed and, and from an event, right? Like I had trouble on this mission and therefore I'm having trouble processing, you know, it, it really doesn't, I mean, I think it can be, and it should be, but we don't really use it and talk about it in terms of like, I'm tired of my beeper going off every summer night at three o'clock in the morning, <laughs> whether or not I respond or, or I'm worried. I'm worried about the fact that if I don't respond, no one will, or that, you know, I have the, one of the search and rescue volunteers talked about the, the FOMO, like that, like, even when I'm tired, like it's so exhilarating and so exciting to kind of do this work that like, I, I don't not respond because it's, it's like, what, what if this is the one where, you know, we get to use the helicopter or whatever. So um, I think that, that peer support really, and I think you're right, Corey. I mean, I think, I guess what I feel like the difference between peer support and friendship is that it is somebody who kind of does the same stuff you do and has a perspective, you know, similar to the one that you have. I think people, make assumptions that they're, that they're not search and rescue people, or they're not nurse people, or they're not massage therapy people couldn't possibly understand. And that that's not true, that those people could provide better peer support than, than we often let them. But I agree that there's a unique perspective to somebody else who has done the training that you've done, has sort of, if not seen the same things, had similar experiences. And I think that that's the you know, this is the people contact us a lot. Cal and I do a lot of like team building stuff. And, and it's the same kind of question. Like what's the difference between friendship and team building, right? And that, and that you don't have to be friends. You don't have to have an outside of work relationship with this person, but you can. And that it's your in work relationship is based in positive regard, right? Whether or not this is a person that you'd want to go to the movies or go skiing or have a beer with, that like you can hold them with compassion and that you can feel vulnerable and connected to them, uh, which is a big ask, I think, in the healthcare world, unfortunately. Well, and I feel like, you know, one of the things that... I, I just loved these people. And so many of them come up and, and talk with us just from all different, you know, uh, socioeconomic backgrounds and geographic backgrounds. And I mean, it's definitely, it appears to be a very white community, um, but there is also some real, um, there's some real white male supremacy in search and rescue. And, and one of the things that we, we tried to address was, something that we had heard from a number of people on different teams that there's like usually a group of men who one of them drives the truck, one of them runs the communications van. Like the men tend to be in charge or women, there are women who maybe have muscled their way in and, and have demonstrated leadership that allows the men to like back off or at least keeps them at bay. But that there's not a, 
there's not a structure of mentorship. So what happens is you have people who have been on this team for 20, 30, 40 years. You would never think to ask Ted not to drive the truck because Ted, Ted will get mad. And so everybody just waits for Ted to get sick or stop volunteering or whatever. Nobody else will know how to drive the truck when Ted dies because he's the only one who's ever been allowed to insert job within the team. And that it seemed so revelatory for some folks as we walked through the thing we walked through so many times about fears. So you tell Ted that he has to teach Nancy how to drive the truck on the next mission. Ted gets mad. Okay, then what? Well, then Ted sends a mad email to somebody or he's not super nice to Nancy. Okay, well, that's lame. We have to address it if he's gonna not be nice to Nancy, but Ted's gonna have to adjust to what's best for the whole group. And that, that takes a type of leadership that's hard to ask of volunteers that definitely strikes at the heart of so many of the things we talk about in terms of like the world order is such that you keep Ted happy, right? Because I don't want to deal with what's going to happen if I try to change how, quote, it's always been done, right? And if I'm a newer person, we had a, a gentleman come to our, uh, our breakout group who said, you know, when I got to this search and rescue team 10 years ago, I really hoped and thought it was going to be like this great family volunteer engagement where like I would like all the people and we would get along and it was a relatively small team and he said 10 years later through lots of work on my part and some other folks who kind of felt like it should be the same way we're a lot closer to that but when I got there it was really fragmented and it was really toxic and um you know everybody's like well so how do we fix it and it's like it's culture change and so the question is, how do we change the culture that has been established and that is erroneously understood to be the thing that holds us together? And how do we start to invite people to consider that there is value in each of these team members? And a number of folks came up to us and said, you know, we have, it sounds like there's a good bit of neurodiversity within the search and rescue volunteer community. And there's a good bit of ignorance about how to help people who are neurodiverse feel like they belong. And, you know, people do a volunteer gig and they don't want to have to people, you know? And that was, that seemed like a thing that we kept hearing from people is like, oh, like I go here to have fun. I mean, certainly I'm responsible and, you know, I'm, I'm helping other people and whatever. And I, I have the things on the mission that I'm supposed to do, but I don't want to have to basically have compassion for a person who processes differently or, you know, just do the things that are expected of humans in environments with other humans. And um, yeah, it's the same kind of barriers. And how do you slowly write that ship when everybody just feels like one little adjustment to this relationship or that relationship is going to blow everything up? And and how do you encourage people to keep going through the mess that will, you know, we, I think we did a decent job of not saying like, it's going to be great. You'll have a couple of meetings and within three or four months, everybody will be getting along. Like you, by stirring up the mud, you're heading into maybe more mess than you even have now. If you stop in the mess, it'll just stay a mess. But if you keep going and you keep noticing and you keep making those little adjustments, you find that in a year, two years, three years, oh, these things that were really hard and tiring don't happen anymore. And we do have more openness and there is an opportunity for so-and-so to say, hey, like you drove the razor last time. Do you think like, you know, you can ride with me, but can I drive? And, you know, that people feel 
empowered to do those simple things that you're like, oh my God, are people really fighting about who gets to drive the truck? Yes, they are. They are. And they're not fighting with each other. They're fighting behind each other's backs about who's the jerk who drives the truck. It's just so classically human. It is a family. It's dysfunctional. It's (laughs) it's a hideous mess. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Well, and I, I feel like, you know, as we were there, we were thinking about, I think there's a sense of, you know, you pointed to it a bit earlier, Carrie, that even as we talk about, and maybe we need to change our language in terms of like elevating the profession, because I think people who, people who don't work in hospitals, people who don't work with seriously ill people have a sense that those of us who do are saying you're not as good or you're not as valuable. And I feel like this is part of what happens with the search and rescue community is like the people who are willing to go down where there might be brains in the cave are like the people that everybody wants to be like or feels like they can't ask those people to do something differently. And the people who actually are really comfortable filling out the reports and doing the things that keep the funding coming don't get any kind of kudos and don't feel valued by the team. And then in the end, it tears everybody apart. So how do we see that it's real great that there is a person who, um, one of the women was talking to us about this person who is somewhere on the neurodiversity spectrum, who is incredibly detail oriented and who, but who also isn't great at reading social cues. And so causes quote unquote problems on the team because they're rude, right? So they don't follow social conventions sometimes when they're asking people for things or sharing information. And, but that person, does those reports better than anyone else. And those reports are important to funding that comes from the state. And you bet your butt, the guy driving the truck doesn't wanna do those reports, but can't figure out how to be nice to that person. And how do we really get that message across that like, if this person quits, you're gonna do the reports and that's not gonna be fun. And in fact, the fact that this person is so good at this is why you get to drive the truck because we have enough funding to buy a razor and to buy a winch and to buy these other things. And I honestly shouldn't have to tell you that, but you know, I think people probably fall into the same categories in whatever role, whether it's in a search and rescue team or a healthcare team that they've been in their whole life. If you're the quarterback, you're the quarterback as the search and rescue volunteer, right? And that's the role you're used to playing. And as adults, I feel like we have an opportunity to grow beyond and around those roles, but Somebody has to ask you to do it and nobody wants to ask. The other really interesting uh, piece that I learned uh, during this conference was in talking about burnout, one of the um, stories that we heard was actually somebody who was uh, like a, it's not dispatch in search and rescue, but basically it's like the sort of person who stays in town or behind the desk and sort of like make sure, yes, we have enough, you know, we needed 10 teams, 10 volunteers. We have that, we have somebody with a dog, we have this, we have that, the the coordinator basically. And that um, it's, we, we heard a story of somebody who had a real, who had that job, who had some terrible, terrible burnout. Um, But that, then I learned that it really isn't very uncommon. And it made me think of sort of emergency dispatch and, and all kinds of folks because the burnout for this position came from my job is just to send my friends and colleagues into really scary, dangerous, terrible experiences. And that I wondered again, 
once again, like there's no peer support for that, right? Because that person didn't pick up brains off the floor of a cave. That person just like made some phone calls. So what's your damage, right? Um, and I w- couldn't help wonder if that person ever gets the positive feedback from the person who loved that mission, who even though it was hard, like this was exhilarating or this was great, you know, this is the, you know, that, that person wasn't found dead, that their life was saved because we went out there, even if it sucked <laughs> and it was cold and it was dark and blah, 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 right? Um, so that's, I guess, kind of a half-formed thought, but it was really interesting to me. And it has made me really curious about sort of emergency dispatch and the, the healthcare providers who are, again, not quote unquote frontline providers, uh, and so the, I wonder about that separation that it really, the additional layer of isolation that you must feel. Um, so if this were a video game, and yes, I'm totally <laughs> going to go here. Um, those types of roles are considered support mm. and support roles are rarely sexy. And like, you don't get the really big numbers, which is what lots of people look for in video games. And you don't get the really cool gear and you don't get to like run around and one hit other people and like feel strong and powerful. Um, you're in the back, you don't get as many resources, you don't get a lot of things, um, but you, your team will fail without you, full stop. Like you might provide um, vision for your team, which sounds like what those communicators do is like, I'm sitting here in the tower telling everybody what's going on and I have the full picture and none of you do, but I've got it. Um, And it's just not, (laughs) it's not a sparkly job, right? Stick with the video game analogy. That is true, but they're treated like NPCs. Yes. You're always there. You always have the same thing to say. You always make the same phone calls. You do this like a robot could do your job, which is not true at all. Not even remotely. Not even close. I feel like we, I I call that operations director. (laughs) (laughs) Would you now? I'm kidding. Sorry. Are you? Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. not like, and and I think part of what works really well at Heal Wall is that nobody really needs to have the sparkly job. Right. Like everybody's really content doing their support job. And because everybody's doing a support job, then yeah. <laughs> the whole thing gets supported and we move forward. But if you have a team of people who like want to be the quarterback or want to be the winch guy or want to be something, and that's maybe the only reason they're there. So maybe that's the trouble, right? And maybe that's the trouble in healthcare is why are you there? Are you there to dramatically save lives in, you know, ER style, like the television show ER style or what, what's the point? And like, at what point did you lose the general I'm in healthcare because I'm a person who wants to help people decision? Well, and I, you know, this is the thing that I think is so hard for people to understand because I think that, um, I'm aware that possibly I'm feeling a little defensive about your recent characterization of Heal Well, that that people that I love and count on and really respect are somehow just, I mean, you sort of painted us as unambitious, that our team is like happy to just, you know, plug away. Oh no. And I think, (laughs) but and so, right. So this is my point is I think that it doesn't take that much for me as the person driving the truck to seek out the person in the comms van after the mission and say, man, 
woman, person, thank you so much. Like I couldn't have done X, Y, Z, or this went so much more smoothly because blah, blah. Like it doesn't, it's not a monumental effort. It just takes noticing that this was in fact a team effort. We are called a search and rescue team. So whether that mission needed three people or 23 people, how do you learn to pay attention to all the things that happened that you didn't even see happen that you know were essential to this? And I, I feel like this is, this is the same thing in healthcare. You know, The people who work in environmental services as it's now called, right. nobody else in healthcare wants to do that job. But if they don't show up, it's going to get real hard to do your job real quick. Right. And so how hard is it to just say like, thank you to the person in the cafeteria or to the security guard and like to mean it and to really think about what would my job, my life be like if this person called out today or just if this role wasn't filled and could I actually do this job? Would I, would I keep volunteering if this was my job? Thank God there are people in the world who want to sit in the comms van or who want to roll the ropes and count them after the mission. And that seems to be missing in a lot of the teams. Well, and I think it's tricky. Again, it brings up one of my other least favorite things, which is just volunteerism in general, because, you know, if you are, one could argue that, you know, and I, I would be that one, um, you know, I love my job as operations director, like this is, but my job is clearly defined. This is, this is what my job is, right? I didn't just sort of walk in. And what happens in a lot of volunteer organizations and a lot of volunteer situations is like, here are, here are all the things that we do that you're technically volunteering for when you show up. But of course it's human nature then to wanna to cherry pick what of those things I do. Nobody wants to do fundraising. That's just true, right? I do fundraising because it's my job. <laughs> Um, very few people want to just volunteer to do those kind of, again, the unsexy, the not sparkly jobs. And so I think one of the, the tricks about volunteering and volunteer organizations that I think gets missed is that it is really important to have some clear definitions around what are you volunteering for? What is expected of you? And and I understand that volunteer organizations or organizations that rely on volunteers live in fear of their volunteers quitting. So there, there's an extra level of anxiety around saying to people like, no, you do have to take a turn fundraising. I'm sorry, you have to sit behind the table at the conference today and like hand people swag <laughs> and tell them which way the bathroom is. Like that is part of your search and rescue gig. Um, but uh, and the same for, for massage volunteer gigs. I think we see all the time, people don't know what they're really supposed to do. They're not really clear about the scope of what their gig is. And so I think it's, it's a, another um, thing that makes it all just it, that much stickier. Yeah, well, and I wonder too, I think that this is part of the struggle with volunteers in any organization is that organizations tend to be so desperate for volunteers that they're orientation processes get watered down and sort of like the expectations are like, we don't wanna make it a barrier to entry. And so, like I was thinking as you were talking about physicians going through residency and that even though I don't think I'm actually gonna be an obstetrician, I have to do three months in obstetrics and just see what that is like. And I, I'm like, 
what if, and I'm sure there are some teams that probably do this, but like before you can just pick and choose what you think is your area in the search and rescue team, you have to do three missions with the person in the truck. You have to do three missions in the comms van. You have to do fundraising. You have to see like, these are all the things that go into making this team work. And then maybe you demonstrate some aptitude as you do your rotation, but by the time you're really like autonomously deciding when your beeper goes off that I'm gonna go to a mission, you know all the pieces that go into making this happen. And I imagine that some of the people show up and go, nope, I'm here to do this sexy part of this. And you know, I don't actually wanna be involved in fundraising. I'm glad there's people who are good at that. But I think most organizations, and I, I feel like possibly this is another thing that's really great about Healwell is that we have grown organically. So in some ways, lots of us have sort of done each other's jobs and have a deeper appreciation for how hard those specific jobs are for each of those people. And I am daily grateful that I don't have to do any of your jobs. And I am also daily grateful that you do them and like them. So <laughs> I think that's something that uh, is missing in some of these teams and uh, is hard to build if, it, if it's not part of the, the infrastructure already. Yeah. It did make me fall in love though with the search and rescue people. I still don't think I wanna be a search and rescue volunteer, but man, I'm glad that they do what they do and um, that there are people who will, will get up at 3 a.m. and go out and post hole in deep snow to find people and do all that stuff. I want to stay snug in my bed. Um, but yeah, if I'm unprepared for a hike or wander off the trail and call the search and rescue folks, I'm real glad that they're out there doing that. and you know, like healthcare providers, I want them to be able to do that in a way that 20 years goes by volunteering search and rescue. And it never occurred to you that you're like, wow, I can't handle this, that it just fed you and you felt supported and you knew where to go for help and, and when to take a break and that it didn't feel like a giant moral, you know, um, ex exploration to be like, am I burned out enough to like take three months off or like, what's the threshold of, okay. Okay, it's bad enough to seek peer support or whatever it might be that really there is that like, huh, something's off. I think I need something. And whether that's talking with somebody or whether it's, you know, all the wonderful activities that Corey tossed out earlier, that it's not always, you know, therapy, quote unquote, that there are lots of things that can be therapeutic, but you have to notice that you need that kind of nourishment. Um, and I think that there's just not room for that. So how do we make room for that? For all of I us. Think, I think there's also this sort of feeling of like 10 pins going on right now of people being like, I can't lean on other people because they're going to fall over too. Yeah. And yeah. if I just stand here really straight and tall, then maybe I can hang on a little longer for everybody else. Like, and that clearly is not working out for most organizations. Yeah. Yeah. There was a, there was a gentleman who asked a question after the, the talk about, you know, so so I go on a, a mission that is hard for me or whatever. And then, you know, I go to my day job. And so the next day I get to my day job and I'm feeling kind of off. And somebody says like, how are you? And he's like, I'm not going to tell them. And I was like, okay, why aren't you going to tell them that, you know, like the person next to you, they may not be a search and rescue volunteer who had to pick brains up out of a cave on Saturday, but maybe they're caregiving for a relative. Maybe they have a kid with a serious disease. Maybe, I mean, none of us is living our dream existence, right? So to assume that the person next to us is uninterested in or sort of will be rattled by the thing that is hard for us 
is a really dangerous assumption that I think is is holding up this thing that you just described, Corey, that we just we want to keep our shame and our pain and our stuff to ourselves because I don't want to I don't want to dump this on you. And it's like telling you about it and dumping it on you are very different experiences. And we just don't we don't trust that we have that resiliency to be there for each other. And that being there for you just means like, wow, that's I did not spend my weekend that way. But here's what I did do. I changed a colostomy bag or I, you know, insert unsavory thing you did this weekend that was emotionally challenging and that brings you to work on Monday feeling like, oh, I wish I had one more day this weekend. I feel like more of us, we would do better if more of us were willing to be like, yeah, not ideal in this moment. Here's why. You don't have to fix it. Just saying it out loud is real helpful. Yeah, I think um, I'm sure people smarter than me have said, like, we imagine, like you said, the 10 pins, Corey, that like one person leans to the right and then everybody sort of like leans to the right and falls over. But like, what if we leaned in toward each other, right? Like in a little, like a little, exactly. little pyramid. Yeah. Become a little flying buttress. That's right. <laughs> Those things are sturdy. Oh, That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like the the takeaway for me was that like we're on the right path in terms of what we want to support humans who care for humans in doing for themselves. And that, um, you know, if you're working with people, it's probably hard. And definitely if you're working with people and, and not paying attention to sort of what's happening around you and um, that when you start to pay attention, it will be a challenge, but it will be worth it. And, you know, we, we talked a bunch about if you feel like you're the only person, chances are that's not true. And, you know, we don't recommend that you stand up in the middle of the next meeting and say, listen, this is not working for me. Who's with me? You know, that maybe that's not how you seek out your, your fellow champions, but that there are probably other people who would like to feel more connected, more energized, more nourished by this volunteer work that they're doing. And that's how culture change starts to happen. Like you can't just demand that people get along because that's gonna just make it worse. So um, showing up again, unfortunately, or fortunately as the case may be, <laughs> seems to be the thing that um, hopefully will lead us to a kinder place. Other big things, Carrie Jordan, that you noticed? No, I, yeah. It's the ongoing conversation that we're having in the Heal Well community. So you all should come and join us <laughs> in the Heal Well community. Exactly. Healwell.org slash community. Still in here. It's the real well community. Oh boy. Here we go. I did. I just did that. Yeah. I did that. Yeah. I heard it. Corey, any other uh, comments, questions? Uh, I do actually have a question, which is, um, was there like an overarching personality type amongst these search and rescue humans as whatever it is, is not my personality type? Because I would like to stay in my bed at three in the morning. That doesn't sound like fun at all. No, I, I mean, I, I don't think so. Did you get that impression, Cal? No, no, I don't. I don't think so. I think like groups of people, there were probably four or five archetypes that you yeah. could do. Um, and yeah. Uh, you know, just like any classroom or any office, like, yeah, you get enough people and you see that they break into clusters. But um, yeah, I think there are definitely the people who are 
happy to throw on their parka at 3 a.m. and go literally into the darkness and the cold and people who are literally happy to get out of their bed in their pajamas and walk into the comms trailer and be like, okay, yeah, I'm going to help you, but I'm going to be warm with my hot chocolate and I'm going to tell you what the truth says. Um, yeah, yeah, I think I think it's the same as all humans. Yeah, definitely people who like to be outside. I think yeah. there's real, you know, there's a real like sort of love of the wilderness and, and of the natural world that inspires people. But um, just like any other volunteer corps, I think then you once you once you peel that off, you've got all the same usual human stuff. Cool. Yeah. So it was an incredible honor um, to be with all of those folks and to um, and to have them want to engage with us and, and to talk about these things. And um, we are hopeful that we hear from some of those folks and uh, some of them have started to follow our propaganda. So um, it would be great to welcome them in as another another spoke in the wheel of healthcare providers and to just do this work together with more people who are touching more people and um, big hats off to all the search and rescue folks and all of their human struggles. Absolutely. Thanks for being with us for another episode of Interdisciplinary. We will look forward to uh, seeing you soon, either in the Healwell community or right here, wherever you get your podcasts and whatnots. And uh, make sure you check out the show notes for some links for cool things and upcoming events in uh, the Healwell world. We love you. We thank you for listening. Stay safe. Interdisciplinary is produced by Healwell. Our theme music is by Harry Pickens. New episodes are available weekly through your favorite podcast outlet. Uh, and you can send us an email at podcast at healwell.org. That's podcast at healwell.org. Thanks for listening.